0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. David Rankin is here today. David is an internationally renowned Australian artist. His work's been shown all over the world, in Paris, Beijing, New York, Chicago. And if you see one of David's landscapes hanging in a gallery overseas, it makes you feel this pang of longing for the Australia you left behind for the lights and the colour, the birdsong, the epic quality of the land. In the last three decades, David has created paintings, ceramics and printworks and when he looks at Australia now, he does so from a distance, from New York, where he and his wife, the author Lily Brett, have been living for the last three decades. David and Lily came together in extraordinary circumstances. They had both come to Australia as small children and had been born into families that were profoundly damaged. Lily's, by her parents' experience of the Jewish Holocaust, and David's, by his father's violence. Despite this, or maybe because of this, David and Lily have found more love together than they ever expected from life. David's on a flying visit to Australia, on a special art mission for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Hello, David. Thank you, Richard. David, tell me about this work you've come to Australia for the Flying Doctor Service.
1: It was a painting that they asked me to do that in some way brought together the spirit and the, the heart of the landscape that was originally seen, probably from the very first flight by Dr Flynn from the air. And... It is a, a theme and it's a, a bird's eye perspective of the land that is something that's very familiar to me. That's the way I see the land you know, in a very holistic way. So when they asked me to do this painting, initially thought, well, am I still up to that? Uh, you know, Do I still have it? But as I became more and more involved with it, I realised that this was an essay in passion for me that was very, very engulfed me totally engulfed me. And in a way, it it sort of unplugged a logjam of feelings and emotions that were there in my heart that were really waiting to be blown wide open. Because
0: you haven't done landscapes, Australian landscapes for quite some time, have you? No. It's something you've done in an earlier phase of your life. What was it like to revisit those feelings and images and ideas and sensations?
1: Did it remind you of your younger self in some ways? Well, when I'm painting, the idea and the thinking comes equally not only from the from the the brain but also from the hands when you're painting, you actually are manipulating and changing and adapting almost like a jazz guitarist or something. And then you're doing something and it flashes an image back to your brain that reminds you of something you experienced as a child. So it'll be reflections in a water or uh, the sunlight on on the side of a a rock or the particular angle of a gum tree and it's there that you've created it with your hands and it's that's been presented back to
0: you. So, so your hands are surprising you all the time? You, Absolutely. you, you paint things in, with your hands and, and
1: then you go, what the hell is that? Uh, exactly. Really? You know, I, especially with landscape but it was also with portraiture. You can't predetermine a brush stroke that will actually give you the, the sparkle in somebody's eye or the reflection of, of sunlight on the water. Exactly. Your hand actually does it and then it flashes back to your brain and you go... Where did that come from? How did I achieve that? It becomes like a dance. You know, I'm physically involved. Your
0: life story wouldn't normally, I suppose, predispose someone to come to a life of art and painting. So there's something a little bit miraculous, I think, about you becoming a painter. Your dad was born in Northern Ireland. Right. He came from Belfast. He met your mum in England. Tell me how they met each other.
1: Well, it was wartime and my dad had been in Belfast. He'd run away from home early on. And he was working as an apprentice to a bootmaking and shoe repair business in Belfast. And that company had a a branch in England, in Plymouth. And Plymouth was, by that stage, probably one of the most bombed out cities of Europe after Dresden. Uh, The Nazis thought that there was a, a de Havilland aircraft manufacturing plant somewhere nearby, and they decided to obliterate the city. And so it. My dad arrives there, he's working in this little shop and my mum's behind the counter and she's a 15-year-old girl and he's an 18-year-old kid and very soon they're together as a couple and mum has me when she's 16 years old. 16. And what drew them to Australia? Well, it's like that kind of migrant, magnet story, you know, one beloved member of a family might migrate and then draws the others on. You know, my uncle, he signed up in the Royal Navy when he was 13. He lied about his age and he'd been on ships since the age of 13. But after the war, he said, look, I've been out to Singapore, that part of the world. We visited Australia I want to go back to Australia and Sydney particularly. So he emigrated to Australia after the Second World War. My grandmother immediately, the beloved son went, so my grandmother immediately started packing her bags and then my mother and father followed. So where did the family settle once you got to Australia? Uh, Guymere Bay. What was Guymere
0: Bay like in the 1940s, 50s?
1: It was basically semi-rural. Small farms, dairy farms... But there was also a lot of working class people who were struggling to survive. There were a lot of uh, families who lived in corrugated iron humpies with hessian for the windows and hessian for the door. And also there were no building materials. So my dad got a job as a plumber's assistant and he had one of those brown workingman's little cases that you took your lunch and you'd copy of the telegraph or whatever. Right, like the globite suitcase. Egg, Absolutely. Right, right, yeah, right. And he would take that off with his lunch but in the evening he'd come home with two bricks that he'd stolen from the, from the, the building site. So gradually he put the, together the pylons, you know, the That would have taken a while,
0: two bricks at a time, I would have thought. Uh, yeah, but it helped. It all helped. <laughs> How was your mother to you? How did you see her?
1: I always saw her as both stoic and solid and strong, because she was a tall woman. I mean, she was probably 5 foot 11, very tall for a woman of her generation, malnourished as they probably were. So I always saw her as a very strong, a very beautiful and very loving mother. I nearly didn't survive my first year. Because of the war, my mother wasn't producing milk. She was producing basically just water. And so I nearly starved to death. After six months of just shriveling, some clever nurse said, you know, I don't think you're actually lactating. You know, I don't think you're producing any milk. that That's when they started feeding me and I started to recover. But by then I'd lost most of my stomach. Then I got a whooping cough for the next six months. So I nearly didn't survive that first 12 months. So I think my mother always had this, thank God he survived, and lavished maybe a little bit of extra attention on me.
0: What was her marriage to your father like?
1: Obviously it had been, you know, romantic to a degree and, uh, you know, I think they always loved each other but it was complicated because my father was both a charming and an angry man. Being a good Irishman he could be very charming and very, very funny but he was not literate so he was also very angry and frustrated I think in life and I was the oldest son so I I copped a lot of the, uh, the, the, the pressure from that. Was there alcohol associated with the violence? Early on, that was not something I was particularly conscious of. Uh, Later on, as I think his disappointments compounded and his frustrations compounded, I think that alcohol became a really serious issue and he became, you know, quite alcoholic. He also was so passionately a jealous man. So he forbid any salesman from coming to the door you know, in those days, you used to have a, a little coupon book that you paid a monthly payment to Knock and Kirby's or one of the department <laughs> stores for because you bought a toaster or a radio or something. You saw Joe
0: the Gadget Man on the <laughs> telly selling something,
1: yeah. yes. And the Knock and Kirby's man would come around once a month and pick up your monthly payment, but he wouldn't have that. I mean, if he ever saw that, he would go completely. Outrageously angry. Well, because of your mum. Oh yeah, jealous. Yeah. Insanely jealous. Was he? Don't violent? you be coming around my house, you know, when right. I'm not at home. Was he violent to your mum too? too? Uh, I suffered violence from him,
0: and I'm sure my mum did. Were you singled out because you were there, or, is, or what do you think about that day? I know it's hard to have perspective on these things, but what do you what do you think now after all these years? Of well, reflection? I think
1: that both on one hand he was probably proud of things that I did, but would never let me know, and was jealous of my mum's affection for me and jealous of the things that I did and probably just jealous of the freedom that I had and the the, the opportunities that I had that he didn't have. And so it was all a mixture of of compounds of jealousy and frustration. Being the son of a bootmaker, I spent uh, every day after school or on Saturdays, school holidays, working in the shop at the bench or in the at the counter. So I could see what he did and it was interesting that I never went to art school, I never went to university. I always thought of myself and told people I was a self-trained artist. But in reality, looking back now, thinking about my father working at his bench at the last with the shoes... As he repaired a pair of broken boots or a pair of broken shoes and he put a beautiful new sole on it, a beautiful new heel on it. Then he would take it with a brush and ink and dye, paint very carefully around the leather to match it with the shoe and then on the bottom where he got this motif from I don't know but it was almost like a a double Art Nouveau two curves on the sole of the shoe and I always loved watching him do it, and he did it so deliberately. And I thought, well, maybe that's where I got my brushmanship from, (laughs) you know. And my other source of brushmanship, I think, was from my my grandfather. He worked in the Pinewood Studios in the 1930s in England, and he would do makeup and he would do lighting. And I figure that that took a degree of sensitivity, but also I remember him drawing. He loved pencils and he did exquisite drawings of movie stars, Theda Barrow or Rudolf Valentino, and they're very, very sweet drawings. So I thought, okay, well, I picked up that from my grandfather as well.
0: Was he kind of like an anti-model in a way? My dad. Your dad, yes. I mean in the sense that you saying to yourself that I, I won't be like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I won't
0: be like that. I won't be that kind of man.
1: Well, yeah, when I was seven... I had a conscious thought that I am not going to grow up with a temper like my father's. And that clear thought has been with me ever since. And one way or another, I've always managed to subvert or redirect or undermine any impulse to anger like that. I still get angry, but it's only if I see somebody abusing a woman or if I see somebody abusing a child. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
0: How did you reach the decision to to
1: run away when you were 15? <laughs> well, I I think the sense of me being at home was just too much that there was just not enough space and not enough oxygen in the house. I had two brothers. We shared a bedroom. We were three big lumps of blokes. My my brother, younger brother Garth, he had found his release by turning to nature he spent most of his life, apart from school, in the bush, collecting snakes and lizards. And also he had the peacefulness, the meditation, the interest, uh, and the companionship of of nature and animals. So that's where he got his balance from. I didn't have that, but I really, really loved books. I really loved dancing. And I just had thought, I've, there's a bigger world, I've got to get out there. So where did you go and where did you sleep when you were at 15? <laughs> well, at that stage, I was also a surf lifesaver down at North Cronulla. First of all, I went there and I slept there a few nights and it was cold and it was damp, but it was, you know, at least it was quiet and I could think. And at one stage then, my mum obviously was distraught and much more upset than I thought or I didn't really think through. So my dad was out driving around looking for me and he went to all my haunts and he spotted me on the street and pulled over and says, your mother would like you to come home. Not we'd like you to come home.
0: Your mother would (laughs) like you to come home. Yeah. There was a teacher at your school who recognised something in you. Tell me about that teacher, Mr Fiala, please.
1: Well, I was lucky uh, recently You know, at at a function we... Uh, We're talking about our memories of childhood and I was saying that one of the things I wanted to do was give a a shout-out to public school teachers, you know, because they formed me in many respects and when I was 11, I had a a teacher in primary school, Mr O'Neill, who uh, gave me a book from the library and said, Ren, can you draw very well? Just look at this book. And so he gave me a book and it was a book on Leonardo da Vinci And so thereafter, for two years, I drew drew every male I knew as an elderly Italian (laughs) medie for a Renaissance figure. (laughs) So that that was one teacher. Another, Mr Spomberg, came to my house and said to my parents, you know, you should let David go as far as he can. Don't take him out of school too young because my dad wanted me to leave school as early as possible. So then in high school I had Mr Fiala who... Was the head of the Czechoslovakian State Theatre in the 1930s, and the war after the war emigrated to Australia, and in 2B English class that he gave at Port Hacking High School, he taught us Stanislavski's method acting.
0: <laughs> you got that in the shire. I you got, got that in the shire. Right and,
1: in Port Hacking High School. And wow. there we all are. Mm. We got dispensed with the English <laughs> curriculum very quickly, and we're all standing there. Pretend, not pretending, not pretending, being you're a tree. <laughs> Think of yourself as a tree. <laughs> so, so we're sort of reaching for the sun, and, and this is all. But Mr. Fiala then did wonderful um, productions, theatre productions. We had a new auditorium, and he put on various uh, productions. One, the uh, existential masterpiece, the insect comedy uh, that my friend Peter Goff starred in. And after one performance of a different production we were in, he came backstage and he was in tears and he said, the people from the Elizabethan Theatre Trust are here and they want to see if you would join them and become a member of the young Elizabethan players and they would help educate you. And and I looked at him and he, he said, look... If you're worried about your family, run away from home and you can live with me and my wife. We will help you. And I thought about it and it was really a complicated thing because obviously I enjoyed the, the production and everything, but I didn't actually want to be an actor. I don't know why, but I just clearly knew that the phrase came into my mind, I don't want to repeat other people's words. And I thought... I was like 16 at the time. And it wasn't it wasn't anything dramatic about it. I just didn't want to do it. So uh, where did
0: you go after you left school then?
1: After I left school, I I barely got through high school. I got one of the last scholarships that were issued for a two-year training teachers college scholarship to Wagga Wagga. Right. And I went off to Wagga Wagga. I enjoyed my two years there. I did very little work. I probably caused more problems and trouble than I was worth. Uh, And then at the end of that, they gave you a map of the state and it was divided into 17 sections. And they said, do your uh, priority, list of priorities, where you would like to go in the state when you leave college. And what did you write? And I wrote, Sydney. (laughs) Second choice Sydney, <laughs> third choice Sydney, and then in brackets, just so we understand each other, no accounts country. Right, this is this is this is asking for trouble, isn't it? Aren't you asking for a, like
0: a slap in the back of the head from someone in the Department of Education if you're doing that?
1: Well, I obviously was. I obviously had a rich fantasy life. Right. I don't know.
0: And where did they send you?
1: Well, January came and. The, my, all my friends had their appointments. Oh, you, oh Peter, you got Mossman. Oh, so and so, you got rule Oh, wonderful for you. So, I thought I don't have an appointment yet. So I rang up the department, and I told them I had didn't have an appointment yet. So can I talk to somebody? Uh, have you lost the paperwork? And so he put me through to the, the the officer in charge, and I told him my name and said that I didn't have my my appointment yet and i i i swear i heard a small snicker he, you know I, and and he said i'll be back in a moment so he went away and came back and he said uh, i've got your appointment i said great he said you've got out
0: <laughs> <laughs> outback I, new south wales about as far from sydney as you can actually get and still remain within the state borders of new south wales 500 miles right. due northwest
1: right. right so i i took that in, I said, they don't want teachers, they want shearers. <laughs> and he said, no, mate, they want a, she- a teacher and you're it. <laughs> and how did you like it once you got there? Well, I got there, I it was a, like a, a an odyssey of misery to get there. I was trying different trains and mail trains and milk trains and I'd been drinking on the train. So when I got to Burke 17 hours later or something, it's the middle of the day. I stepped off the train. The headmaster was standing there waiting to welcome me. I fainted in the heat, <laughs> into his arms, and he thought, "Oh God, look what I've been stuck! <laughs> look what I've been stuck with!" So anyway, after uh, after being there for twelve months, I was th- at that stage. I was the youngest, strongest male on the staff. So they gave me what they in those days referred to as the slow learners, and we had a classroom. Way behind a screen of trees, down the back of the the pitch, but I loved it I absolutely loved it i why en- why why did you love it? Well, I engaged with my kids I, I i loved seeing them i wanted i saw how if 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 I presented the material it would excite them, so it became something of a a daily thing for me. I would just love to be with the kids and and see their progress and get to know them and their families. So after a year um we did really well and my kids were examined at the same level as the rest of the though I think they were nominated as third class and they were examined at the same in the same way as the third class kids and some of my kids came from 120 in the you know around 20 25 of the year and I said to the the deputy headmaster you know, I'm I'm really excited about these kids. I'm, you know, looking forward to seeing what they do next year. And he said, oh, no, no, they'll be in the same group. And I said, but these kids have, have succeeded and performed at a really extraordinary level. And he said, yes, but David, that's because of you. We can't guarantee that they'll be with you next year. Were they Indigenous kids? Uh, some of them were, yeah. So they were stuck in that groove then, and, and
0: what did you that, say? What
1: did you say? I I resigned. I just said, "Oh, I, I can't do that. That's heartbreaking. I can't do that." So I I left teaching, but by that stage I loved Burke. I loved the Northwest. I loved the Darling River, clay pans and ridges and dust storms and bull dust and everything. So I looked for a job that would take me back to that area. So I joined. Uh, Wiki-Iki, Water Irrigation Conservation Commission. That's where I started seriously in thinking about what it means to make a painting. What were you seeing in the land that made you want to paint it? There was one formula that I, I actually thought about and I'd, I'd remember this from high school. I think a teacher had said to me, to be an artist you have to have your own special vision of the world. And I thought, what and I put together that is a special vision. And I was like 18, 19 when I was there. And I thought, if I can be cognizant of, of our Western culture and heritage and understand that we're in an Asian context, because another teacher in high school had give me a book on Buddhism. So I'd studied the history of Buddhism through Southeast Asia and then east to China and Japan. So I was cognizant of, of that. So I was thinking about that network through Southeast Asia. And then if I was respectful and understanding to a degree as much as I could of Aboriginal culture, that formula, that would give me or could give me a unique vision that nobody else in the world could have. I could sit on the banks of the Darling and 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 just contemplate, think, dream... For me, it was a fantastically rich life. You know, I could sit there as Robbie Burns looking at a, a spider in a web. I could sit there in a clay pan and be looking at the ants and the spin effects and the dry, you know, the calligraphy of all the, the things around me. And that was just full of... That was anima. That was life. That was fantastically rich.
0: And when it's working for you as an artist, is that as happy as you can be, I wonder? As an artist? Yeah. As a, as a human being, I think. I don't know if it's working for you, feeling surrounded by all these things and capturing them somewhere in your own way. Is
1: that, is that joyful? Well, I'm, I've got an exhibition coming up in the States uh, in, in Maine in July. And th- that art dealer spent a lot of time in my, yeah, you know, with me in my studio and found some paintings from the 1970s and said, could I exhibit these as a starting gate to introduce other decades going forward? A no, my- proper
0: retrospective, yes. yes.
1: but this will be the first chapter. And I said, of course you can. You know, they're, they're there and they're available and I'd love them to be seen. And what it means is that I'm now looking at those paintings from the late 60s and early 70s that are full of the the calligraphy of the the clay pans, uh, the riverbanks, the ridges. And she asked me to write something about the context of it so her, you know, art collectors and people in in Maine might understand it. So I I wrote and I was thinking about, about that life then and thinking about the the sense of calligraphy that the the spinifex and the dry grass could give me, and then shafts of light that would were like awakening or spiritual awareness or satori or so it fitted in with my Buddhist understandings at that time podcast broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: After you got back to the big city, Sydney, after your time in Burke, this is when you formed an alliance with a young poet by the name of Robert Adamson, who died, died <laughs> right. recently. Tell me about meeting Robert and the effect that you had on each other as friends.
1: Well, I got back to Sydney and my brother Garth was working in a factory, a brown-built furniture factory that made office desks. And one night he said to me, oh, mate, I've got this bloke we work with and he's new there but we're really, really close. We hang out together and we built a ziggurat out of office tables, desks. <laughs> we built a ziggurat and we sit on the top and we lament. <laughs> and I said, sounds fabulous. And he said, yeah, and he really loves poetry. So we, we write these notes from Percy Bysshe Shelley saying, know thyself. And we put it into the desks so that some bureaucrat somewhere <laughs> opens the drawer and says, and looks at this and says, oh, they're right, I should be thinking about something bigger. <laughs> so, and Garth said, he really, really loves poetry. And I told him, my brother really loves poetry too. So he'd really love to meet you. So I said, yeah, sounds great. Bob, of course, was total iconoclast scallywag of a, of a guy. And we met up a couple of nights later and he brought some of his poems and I asked to read his poems and, of course, they were very Percy Shelley, on the banks of the Hawkesbury River, lots of noble images of Aboriginal peoples and they were very, very wonderful but very romantic poems.
0: He was a very lovable man too,
1: wasn't he? He was was one of those people that, that were almost irrepressible so committed, so passionate, and so involved, and the fact that we both loved poetry meant that we would just read and read and read, and quote and quote and quote, or sit all night and listen to Blonde on Blonde. You know, <laughs> it was just very intense, and we were we were great allies. And so we set out to conquer the poetry world together. You know, uh, we joined the Poetry Society and managed to stack a meeting at one stage so we could get ourselves elected. <laughs>
0: You stacked a meeting at the Poetry Society like like some Labor Party apparatchiks or something? Yeah,
1: we went (laughs) along to a poetry meeting, a society meeting, and I said to Bob afterwards, the elections are coming up and only nine people ever come. All we've got to do is get 12 people to come. (laughs) We're, We're set.
0: Meanwhile, you were still painting. How did you get to have your first proper exhibition in
1: Sydney? As I said, I came down from the bush. I'd actually thrown in the job I was in and I was working in a motel in King's Cross as a night porter.
0: Really? A night porter at in the a King's Cross motel? Yes. And right. It was you, know, height- you would have seen everything that can possibly happen to a human being doing that Especially job Especially in the
1: height of R&R for our American friends.
0: <laughs> During the Vietnam War.
1: Yeah, it was very intense. So I was working all night, painting all day, and I'd had a friend, Jeffrey Macon, who I had met in a school that i taught at, and he was showing with Frank Watter's gallery. And he said, You should come along, hang out, meet some other people. So I went along to the gallery a few times. And after about three months of you know being a peripheral fringe person, I said to Frank, sort of very shyly, I I I, I paint paintings too. <laughs> well, I'm a painter too. <laughs> I paint. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and Frank just looked at me and said, I've been waiting for six months for you to ask me. Really? So he knew of you? He obviously Jeffrey had told him already. And so Frank was just waiting for me to make an approach. And he said, Will you bring some in? So I I went home and packed all these paintings up and I picked up some I left had left some with one person and I went back to pick them up. And she said, Oh, I'm really sorry. We used them for kitchen shelves. (laughs) They were nice mace (laughs) night boards. But anyway, what? I got enough paintings together.
0: Oh, Australia. <laughs> oh, Australia. I, I wow. got
1: enough paintings together and I stacked them on the back of my Austin A40 and roped them on. And I was coming back over the Sydney Harbour Bridge and somehow or other the knot untied, the rope flew open, and the, the paintings just f- <laughs> flashed out uh, in, front of my, in front of my eyes like cards. <laughs> Across across the, the very street, and I sort of I had to pull up, and you know how they had a bollard in between the lanes. Yeah. I had to pull up the car, jacked it up on that, and then scampered around trying to retrieve the paintings oh, in no. between cars. And I, I, most of them, few of them had a chip, and, or a corner off, or a or a you know a tire mark across the middle. But I got most of them together, put them back together again, and got to see Frank, and Frank. Really liked them and said, "There, yeah, they're really nice and you're going well. Maybe next year we think about doing an exhibition. And I said, that would be fabulous. And about 10 days later I got a phone call from Frank saying, could you be ready next week? And obviously a show had fallen over that he had planned and I said, of course. So got all the paintings stretched and, and, and framed and off to the gallery.
0: Sometime I think it was the late 70s you met... Lily Brett, your wife, right. Right? Brett. you were already married at the time and your wife was very, very unwell. Tell me about the fraught circumstances in which you came to meet Lily for the first time.
1: Jenny, my first wife, was also a writer, a poet, and she had been diagnosed with breast cancer and all the processes, the treatment, the surgery, nothing had been successful. And at that stage, I thought, we've just got to give her the best life possible. So I said to her, would you like to go around the world and say goodbye to everyone? You know, friends in America, San Francisco, New York, back to England. Ted Hughes was a a close friend. So that's what we did. And... At that stage, there was only other one option uh, for Jenny and that was to go to Melbourne from Sydney to join a group that was led by Dr Ainsley Mayers who treated cancer patients with meditation, very deep, very thorough meditation. And he had a level of remission. Some people had recovered. So that was the only option that we could see. So we moved to Melbourne and... I took her each day to his rooms. So that was really the next six months Jenny was having treatment there. And then towards the end of her life, she. what I do have to say is that Ainsley Mears' treatment was spectacularly successful in terms of pain control. She didn't have a remission and her tumours kept growing and her physical state deteriorated, but the pain control was amazing. She was literally pain-free, up until she died. So towards the end of that uh, period for her, a newspaper had contacted Lily, unbeknownst to me, to ask her if she would do an article about Jenny and her youth and her poetry and her imminent death. And Lily initially said, no, I can't do that. That's too too difficult. That's too, too difficult. And they said, well, if you don't do it, you know, nobody else will. You're our sensitive journalist. You're our sensitive writer. So Lily did take it on. And I arranged uh, for her to come and to meet with Jenny, who did not want to talk about dying, only wanted to talk about her poetry. So Lily had this difficult brief of writing this story about an appalling situation. But to do it, I didn't stay around to be like the caregiver. I set Jenny up at a table with a chair, unlocked the door so that Lily would be able to let herself in and Jenny would be ready and able to deal with her and then I'd come back afterwards. So I didn't meet Lily at that point but I did contact her later and tell her that the article she wrote was absolutely beautiful and fantastically effective for Jenny. So a little bit later, Lily had noticed that our daughter Jessica was, you know, pale and, and, and wan from having a mother in this situation for two or three years. And she contacted and asked whether she could take Jessica out roller skating with her kids. And, and by that stage, uh, Jenny was, was terminally, go, you know, going into hospital for the last time. And when I opened the door to Lily, who was picking Jessica up, I i have never taken any drugs in my life, ever. Nothing stronger than a glass of cognac. And I don't even drink anymore. I mean, I gave that up 40 years ago. But when I opened the door and the sight of, of Lily, it was like this. all of a sudden my head was full of, of the cosmos and changing lights and colours and stars rearranging themselves. And I, it was, I could not believe the experience I was having just looking at Lily. And I just looked at her and I thought, I think I was born to be with you. And this was an awkward situation. How many seconds had elapsed since you'd opened the door before that thought came to your head? Possibly one and a bit, like literally, literally. If, as I opened the door, the experience like opened up, this whole cosmos opened up. And was she aware she was having that effect on you? I think she might have thought that I was a bit dippy, <laughs> like I wasn't answering questions quickly or, or like I maybe had my mouth open or I don't know, But but it was an overwhelming experience. A absolutely overwhelming experience. And what did you do about that? Well, I obviously shelved it um, because, you know, this is not a time and a place to be talking about things like that. And so I got Jessica and Jessica went out with Lily and then I went on to nurse Jenny as, when, as she died and I'd be in the hospital most days until she died. She was in there for three weeks. And after Jenny died and I was thinking about packing up my things and what was my life going to be like, taking Jessica back to Sydney. And then it occurred to me that, you know, actually I'd like to actually see Lily um, because I thought she could be a good friend. Kidding yourself. My (laughs) God. So what did you do? Well, I, 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 Saw Lily a few times as a friend. She would bring around some food to, for, for Jessica and for me. To or that strange she, man. Yes. That strange t-
0: man who's, who starts to gibber a lot when, when I'm in his yes, presence.
1: He's so monosyllabic. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and gradually I realised that I was really falling in love with Lily and it was very complex because she was married to somebody else. And I had to deal with my overwhelming primal instincts to to sort of offer my life and my love and eternity and respect the fact that she was married to somebody else. So how did that situation resolve itself? Without a lot of conscious thought. Mainly I just followed instincts and impulses and... I said to Lily at one stage, I said, Yeah, you guys, you know, you, you, you've been together a long time. She said, Yes, we're 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 happily married. And I said, See, I think that's I think you protest too much. The happy was unnecessary.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> and, well, Lily's been on this program several times. Right. And I think her version of events is that, you know, she'd grown up, as you as you know, as the daughter of Holocaust survivors, and you don't expect too much from life. And right. I think she th- I think she said she thought she was happily Married, she had kind of a lowered expectation of what right. love was right. in her life, so yeah. a workable, a workable, yeah, it was yeah. something she could work with. So what? So, so how did she respond when you'd said, "Oh, I don't, I think the lady doth protest too much." Well, here.
1: it was it stealth. It was a, it was, you know, to say it was a stealth campaign it was, it, yeah, you know, it was actually blunt and it was very direct. She said one day to me in conversation, "Well, I've got to go out tonight because I've, I'm being, I'm interviewing a couple for a story I'm working on," and I thought there was an instinct in me that thought, right, I'll go to her house tonight before she gets home and when she gets home, I'll be there. Now, the logic of that is still escapes me. Just mad. Why why I thought that was a good plan. But I got there, I went there, her husband was there. I said, oh, I'm a friend of, of Lenny's, I'm just calling around to say hello. He said, oh, well, come on in, have a cup of tea. So we sat there and he said, awkwardly, well, would you like to, play chess or something. I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to play chess. I've never played chess in my life. Lily came home and walked in the kitchen and said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, (laughs) I'm beating him (laughs) without without too much subtlety at all. (laughs) So then I started getting more and more overt with Lily. And I said, listen, you really should be with me. I was born to be with you. You were born to be with me. I said, I know that you love and respect your husband, but, you know, you are meant to be with me. I said, you and I will fly together. She said, well, I don't know that that's a good idea. I said, listen, if you don't capitulate, if you don't give up, I'll buy a caravan, I'll park it on the street outside your house and I'll live there until you give up. And I think she thought... He will do it. Is that crazy?
0: You're still deeply in love? Yes. How many years ago was that?
1: Oh, goodness, that was 44 years ago.
0: 44 years ago? Yeah. So you got married, made the decision to move to New York in 1989. Mm-hmm. What did that do for you as an artist moving to New York?
1: It meant that I could assert something in my work that meant that I could. I could make mistakes, I could fail, I could experiment and there was no expectation of what a collector coming to the studio wanted or a dealer coming to the studio who knew what I did in my last show and wants three more. It meant that I could experiment. I said to Lily, you know, we need to be able to make mistakes. We're too young to be solidified in our careers and well-known for what we do. We're not even 40 yet. How did being with Lily change
0: your work, knowing Lily's family, her really incredibly intense family story.
1: Well, I had been in various ways at an abstract landscape painter and when I met Lily, it's like I became fantastically physically passionate about everything, life, food, food the surf, whatever it was, it became something fantastically intense. So the landscapes became more physical, more overt, more more bones and more flesh and more muscle and more sky and, you know, oh, I need more trees in there and I need this and I, everything became much more and it, they became much more overt landscapes. And so... They were the landscapes that became the the work of the 1980s that I was really well known for. But then all of a sudden I realised I actually had just come from something unbelievably painful in the 70s with the death of Jenny. I'm with Lily whose consciousness uh, is formed by pain and loss and the story of her family and I started realising that I, I wanted to deal with that subject as well that I didn't always have to be in the bright light of my talent. My art could actually go into some of the darker shoals Well, I was going to ask you that.
0: Yes, because because I was wondering if you becoming optimistic is a threat to Lily's work, which is so informed by her hysterically funny pessimism. She often said that what well, the thing that really bothers you Her most about you is when you get asked how you are, and you say, "I feel great." No, you should never (laughs) say you feel great because a million things are going could possibly be going wrong inside your body at any
1: given moment. So, uh, yeah, is there a? Do you just enjoy that difference in each other? That uh, well, at that point, we actually worked in harness. It was the 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 passion to 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 explore the story of her family life and that uh, animated Lily, and it was a passion that. I started to express in my paintings to understand that darker aspect of life, the death and the loss that was still real in, in, in me and that I could identify with Lily and her family. But I didn't want to trivialise it. I mean, Lily wanted me to illustrate her first book of poems, the Auschwitz poems, and I said, sweetheart, it's not my family story. I don't want to trivialise somebody else's story and in the back of my mind I'm thinking I don't draw that well and I don't want some elderly Jew coming to me saying, it wasn't like that. (laughs) You know, so I'm I'm thinking uh, maybe I... And I said, but I've got friends. I'll give the manuscript to Yossel Bergner, a great Australian artist who, who knew that story and he was in Tel Aviv. At that stage, and I, I asked Yossel, I said, "You, would you look at this?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, of course." So I sent him the manuscript. I rang him up and said, "Did you like it?" He said, "Like it, like it. What's to like it?" He, I said, "He said, I love it." I said, "So you'll illustrate it?" He said, oh, "What are you doing? Trying to kill me? I can't possibly do that." So I, that went back to Lily, and I said, "No, Yosel won't do it. But Tucker didn't want to. Do, I loved the book, but didn't want to do it." And she said, well, I really want you to do it.
0: So then it was a responsibility after that.
1: After that, then, mm. then I, uh, that was my responsibility. So we would be sitting in bed at night. Lily would be working on her poems. I'd be working on the drawings. And so that became our, our joint odyssey for the next couple of years.
0: Nearly eight years on into New York, there was a terrible fire in your loft in Soho, mm-hmm. in New York City.
1: What happened? Well, we were going to Mexico for three months and we wanted to locate ourselves there and become more deeply embroiled in the, the culture and the people and so we were going to be away for three months so we said we'll let the loft for three months while we're away and we led it to a, a group who unfortunately we didn't realise were looking at it as a dormitory. It wasn't just the couple who came and saw it, but they had 14 other people in the wings waiting. And so when we had gone, they all moved in and there were lots of cables and power strips and there was a, a faulty power strip. And while Lily and I were in Mexico and our friend rang and said, David, you better sit down. I've got some bad news. So he said, your loft's been burnt out and it had been this uh, faulty Power strip that had caused the fire. And when we got back, we didn't go directly to the loft. We thought we've got to prepare ourselves. So we stayed in a local hotel the night. And then the next morning, we got up and uh, I'm starting to shake now, even thinking about it. Got up, went up the street and went into the loft. And it was absolutely drenched with water, of course, all the windows blown out, paintings everywhere. Sadly, manuscripts of lilies got burnt and lost, but hundreds of artworks were lost. Um, But also family photographs, possessions, you know, family goods that were really precious to us. So that was absolutely traumatic, absolutely traumatic. Not as traumatic as dealing with the insurance company after that, but (laughs) it was traumatic.
0: So now you live in the Lower East Side... You love living in the Lower East Side,
1: absolutely. What do
0: you love about that part of New York?
1: Well, I think what we well, one of the things is that it's not Soho because Soho's become, uh, you know, a different kind of world than the, the artists and poets and dancers wandering the streets forty years ago. It's now a different world altogether, whereas the Lower East Side is still writers and painters and poets, but also, you know, ethnically probably the most mixed area of New York. It's uh, it's black, it's Hispanic, it's Chinese, Chinese mm. and Hasidic Jews and it's just an amazing community. And also it's socioeconomically interesting because they, these are real families meeting on the street. You see three generations, you know, grandparents, parents, children, it's just a very, very vibrant and real world and that's what we like about it. It seems
0: to me just hearing you talk about your life, David, you kind of have this lovely gift of being able to see and accept the good and the beautiful. Mm. What do you think of that That statement? Is that true? Uh,
1: yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely true. I've just got a great appetite. I like to eat, I like to drink, I like my family, I'm blessed with my beautiful lily and know what I've got. I think those early days, difficult years with my father helped me understand that not everything is given. You know, you are blessed and you are lucky. You know, don't take it for granted.
0: Your old friend, your partner in crime and poetry, Robert Adamson, the great Australian poet, died not so long ago. Did you get to speak to him before he died?
1: Yes. When I started exhibiting as a painter all those years ago, when I was 20, 21 with Frank Waters, Bob... Became passionately jealous and angry, and saw it as a total betrayal.
0: What you leaving poetry? Absolutely behind? right.
1: Yeah, you know, he saw paintings as you know, like like handbags or chattels or <laughs> so, something that was totally some impure <laughs> artifact yeah, of the world. Right. And so, it took years for Bob and I to repair the friendship, but we did repair the friendship, and mm. we became closer towards the end. And when I knew that he was ill and Juno had been in touch a few times and and I said, look, I think it's time for me to say goodbye to Bob and because it was clearly coming time. And I said, I'll ring you 12 o'clock your time tomorrow. And she said, that would be great. We'll be fine. 12 o'clock midday, that's great. So... I rang at 12 o'clock and didn't pick up didn't pick up and finally it picked up and there was a smattering and slashing and cra- crashing and she's obviously still asleep and it's beside the bed she picks it up and I'm looking at her face in, in FaceTime as she's still f- asleep and I said I'm ringing for the call with Bob she's all oh, right he's just here and she passed it and just held it above Bob's head as he was in bed and he woke up and started talking but Juno, all I can see is his scalp. (laughs) So I spoke to Bob's scalp for the next 30 minutes and we had a lovely farewell and chat, chat, chat. And I said, Bob, you know, we didn't do too badly. You know, we were two bits of rubbish that were blowing in the wind and we seemed to stick after a while, so we did okay. And I said, you know, you've had your life, you've toured the world, you've lectured at the Sorbonne and read in New York and Chicago... You've done well, my friend.
0: Things have worked out okay for you too, David, in the best possible way. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Richard.
1: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: ABC.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.